Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's weekly podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with film historian Bruce Lawton to talk about Tumler Danny Kay. Uh, Bruce will be here at the Yiddish Book Center on Sunday, September 9th, delivering his multimedia program about Danny Kay. So we thought it would be nice to have a visit and learn more about this very famous and much-loved actor, comedian, etc. So welcome, Bruce. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Danny Kay and sort of how he figures into your interest in film in general? Well, I, I, one of my, my biggest specialty, I mean, I'm very eclectic uh, in the world of cinema, my interest in cinema, but, but from my, my origins, uh, very early on before I, I think I was pre-verbal, uh, I was exposed to comedy films of Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy and W.C. Fields and some of the other greats. And so I, I was hooked very early on. So when something like that happens, then even if it isn't presented to you as, as those were, uh, you just, you like a, a beacon. You just look for, in those days, I, I was born in 1969, so I, I grabbed every book uh, every television uh, listing that would have something that was even remotely uh, comedy-related. I found that I would turn on the TV, and, and if I saw someone like a Danny Kaye, even though I would, would not have been formally introduced to him or an adult wouldn't have said, uh, oh, watch him, uh, I was already attuned to, oh, he's one of those guys. He's one of those people that I'm, I'm deeply uh, attuned to. And so I think like many people of that generation, I would see, you know, the, the, the common films of his that would be run on television, Hans Christian Andersen, we shown around the holiday times. Uh, you might have caught uh, something like The Court Jester, uh, Walter Mitty, uh, a number of the, more of the common, more famous films would, would turn up, and you'd see these things. And, and uh, so I, he, he was always in my consciousness. Also, my parents, uh, interestingly enough, each had a record album. He did many record albums. And they each had a record album uh, when they met. They only found this out later that uh, they had the same exact record album in their respective collections before they, you know, from as children. And, you know, sort of, <laughs> they found that kind of interesting. I remember listening to that record. But um, I would, in the late 70s, I got a copy of a book called The Great Movie Comedians by Leonard Moulton. And I just, I mean, I read that book countless times. I poured over every entry, starting from Chaplin. I think it's from Chaplin to Woody Allen. And uh, Danny Kaye is one of the later entries. And one of the things, fascinating things I found in reading that, I, much to my surprise, was that he made a series of, of short subjects in the late 30s uh, before his, his classic features, um, you know, that, that everybody knows, the Technicolor pictures he did for Goldwyn and Paramount and whatnot. And to find that it, that was just such a, ooh, he did these shorts, and where can I see these? And it took a good 25, 30 years before I could start to actually find, um, track down copies of these. And whenever I'd see them referred to in any book on Danny Kaye or any entry, they're always very dismissed. And whoever writes about them doesn't really, they clearly have only, if they've seen anything, they've seen maybe one of them or maybe two, and they just they make a, a general assumption about them and they're very dismissive about them and they really don't know accurately or express accurately what those films are or what they represent in his career. Mm -hmm. And so upon 
you know, being on the hunt to find all four. Originally, I thought it was five, but there's there's one that's erroneously is. Uh, uh, Moon over Manhattan is often listed as his very first appearance, which, if he's in it at all, it would have been just a walk-on or literally part an extra. And I've, wa- I've got a rare copy of this film from a collector, and I watched it intensely several times, and I'm, I'm 95 to 99% sure he's not in it. I don't think. I think it's erroneous. But in the late 30s, he's... Uh, well, anyway, getting back to my interest is just the fact that I was... If something is not available... And you're interested, you, you know. He's like, well, why? Why is this not available? Why is so that that became a, a real, um, not a holy grail necessary. Well, I guess it was kind of a holy grail to find those films and really absorb them and find out what they were about. And I, I, I find I think I'm the only one that's really done that. Of all the people that that write about him or are interested in, is to really study them and I want to present them uh, within the context that that they were made and 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 how, what they represent in his career. It was interesting um, learning more about him. Certainly, he was an iconic figure. Um, anybody of the sort of the baby boomer generation and parents and grandparents, he was a real presence on television and the movies, and uh, as you say, on thirty threes, etc. Well, he was a. I mean, he was a superstar. I mean, he yeah. was on the level of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in England in the late forties, you, you read about his live appearances, which were apparently beyond his film work and television work. I mean, he was greeted like a, a king or a prince when he would go to do those live performances. He really was a superstar. And I think he appealed to many generations. It wasn't just that he had a teenage fan base or a 20-something, 30-something fan base. He really was able to reach out and interest them all. It seems as though, from what I've read, that he kind of found his way into acting by chance. Um, I gather he ran away from home following the death of his mother, and that led to his work in the Borscht Belt, where he began. And it wasn't as though this was his dream or aspiration. Um, He kind of stumbled, excuse the expression, um, but he did sort of stumble into becoming a bit of a physical comedian. He can do stumbles, yes, very well. Well, he, there's a quote from him, and this certainly sounds like it sounds like he really was attuned to. He, he once said, "I became an entertainer not because I wanted to, but because I was meant to." He seemed to be attuned to the fact that it, it, I think that sometimes a big thing is made of something that, that isn't really there. But I think in his case, it's so obvious that he, even though he had other things that he was interested in and certainly could have excelled at. It just seemed to be predestined that that you know there was no way that he could do anything else. But I think you know John Barrymore would be another, a more tragic example of that. He was somebody that I don't think he necessarily really wanted, or had a great passion for being an actor. But it, it's so much what, it's almost like what he was born to do. And and in Kay's case, I mean his performing skills are just so off the map and phenomenal. And and you, one can say that without really exaggerating. I mean you watch him in anything. And I don't think he ever gives a false step or, uh, you know, I don't know. If, I mean, you could say, well, it must have been great editing. But you can see, you know, him doing performances on live TV, too. And rarely does he ever make a false step or move. He's just so elegant and so seeming just effortlessly effervescent and prepared and just seems to just, I mean, with a Fred Astaire-like kind of, you know, whatever, but, but very unique in what he is doing and what he does. It, he offers something that nobody else before or since. Uh, you can compare certain elements of his, whether it's Chaplin or Fred Astaire or whatnot, to the, the kind of echelon of performer he was. But, but what he offers is, 
hasn't, hasn't been seen before or since. It seems like it's very genuine. It's almost like the kid in the class who's a performer uh, who drew as much from the audience as he gives back. Um, right. This came very naturally to him, and he kind of played to the audience in that regard. Yes. Yeah, I, I would I'd agree. And, and I say rarely. I mean, the only thing that I, I tend to sometimes, that he doesn't, I, sometimes somebody doesn't have the best idea of what works and, and I find the one, there's only one thing that he occasionally will do in films uh, where he does a, sort of almost like a playing a, a very young child or infant, and he gets it almost like a baby talk kind of thing. And he apparently, he himself, would do that at the drop of a hat and found that very funny. And I think that was, that was the one thing that he would, you know, wasn't the best judge of, of that being, or mm-hmm. it certainly isn't, wasn't timeless. It doesn't, it doesn't carry over well. But it really is the only thing. Just about anything else that you see him doing in any film or any performance or on television is just uh, really is just it's an amazing thing to behold. He's charismatic. You just he's one of those people like you just you watch him and you once you see him and he's on screen you can't take your eyes off of him. He's just he's so fascinating to absorb and watch perform. So following the Borscht Belt, he went to New York City and ended up performing with Sylvia Fine, and that's how they met, I think, yes? Well, there's a little more in between there. Um, he, he found his way to the Borscht Belt and the Catskills and, and did uh, work as a, as a tumbler and uh, was apparently very successful at it and obviously, you know, bounding energy and, and enthusiasm and, and what have you, and that was tapped into very early on. And uh, eventually he found his way within a, within a, uh, a trio, uh, a man and, another man and a woman and performers and himself. And they went, uh, they performed in New York, and then they actually went to Asia. They did a, so before he even gets into his very first films, he'd already, you know, done vaudeville, performed o- overseas, performed in Europe, um, performed in Japan, performed in England. Um, and... There's another interesting quote that I love. He says, you bet I arrived overnight, over a few hundred nights in the Catskills and vaudeville and clubs and on Broadway. Um, and that, that was him, you know, commenting, you know, anybody say, oh, you, you know, you just hit it like the jackpot. And it's like, no, there was a lot of hard work that went in many, many years of, of struggle and, and, and hard work uh, to be noticed, to, be, to find his niche, to... Um, and one of the problems, I think, was the fact that, if you can call it a problem, is the fact that he could do so much. And so it was very hard to typecast him or stick him in a, a certain not, you know, slot or peg or whatnot. He would actually go to uh, an agent or you know, try to find work, and they'd say, well, what do you do? And, he's, and, and they'd say, well, you know, and, and he'd say, it, it's almost like he couldn't express the fact that he could do so many things. And they'd, you know, unless you could really say, I'm this, or I'm this, or I'm this, and be pigeonholed, you were of no use to them. And it was only when Sylvia Fine came along, she was really attuned to what this man could do and, and could, and with her own skills and her own talents, could write material that, that absolutely fit exactly with what he could do with his uh, verbal skills and, and, and singing and, and, and other things. And so that's, that's where that finally that gel happens, and then, and then Hollywood starts to beckon in the, in the mid-40s. And do you think she helped him to really define and create his persona or really build his career? Would he have gone in a different direction, do you think? Uh, it, it's, it's a little hard to say, and, and that's part of what these early films certainly give, um, certainly give a lot of fodder for conversation about it or speculation, in that 
in watching these early performances, and this is a, about exactly a year before he met and started working with her, um, you see the raw talent there. And not just the raw talent, but his ability is just being able to, to do verbal things and puns and, and physical stuff, and the elegance is all there in the, in the body language. And so, you know, it's like anything. It's like bringing someone like her in certainly gave him great pieces of material to be remembered by um, that, that are now show pieces, you know, the, the, the poison and the pestle from, from Court Jester and Anatole of Paris, and, and these, these bits that when you say Danny Kaye to someone in the know who knows the work will re- remember those things, and that's the Sylvia Fine factor. But had she not come along, I still think there's no way, unless he would have just not, for some, one reason or another, not found success. Maybe he needed her to get noticed using that kind of, you know, really good polished material. Um, if somebody else had taken him in hand and, and said, look, we realize that you can do all this incredible stuff, we'll find, you know, stuff for you to do. I mean, I think he, he still would have made it, and he still would have been noticed. He just wouldn't necessarily have had those show pieces that, that she was able to bring that, that you know, just cement him in these very iconic uh, moments in cinema and in pop culture. And he had strong Jewish roots. He was born to Ukrainian Jewish immigrants. Right. He had a different name. It was Kaminsky, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think this informed his work? I, I think it does. It's, obviously, how could it not? Um, and he certainly was attuned to it. Um, he probably more than some uh, because of you know, his, his appearance and whatnot was able to sort of, and I think he was very aware of this, he was able to more mesh in with, with the rest, you know, in, in a climate where there might have been some anti-Semitism, or that we know that there was anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in show business and, and, and American culture. He certainly could play both sides, and he tended to err on the side of not relying on, he certainly could do Yiddish humor, he could do uh, ethnic humor, but I think a lot of people, there are people who don't have any idea that he was Jewish and, and, and would look, might, could look at a selection of his films and not have any clue or idea about that, because that isn't generally what he relied on. But I, I, I think if you really study the man and, and read biographies about him and, and learn about him, I mean, he certainly never uh, was very attuned to his ethnic roots. And, and you see it in, in things like um, uh, Me and the Colonel, which is, you know, about prejudice, uh, against Jews uh, in a very, very thought-provoking and yet gentle way. The way he plays that is just, you know, exquisite. And um, the television movie, of course, he made later on, uh, Skokie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, he didn't shy away from it. He just made a point of, you know, he worked with what he had, which was just so, could be so globally accepted and, and not pigeonholed as a particular ethnicity, you know, just off the top of my head, say somebody like an Eddie Cantor, who, you know, is mm-hmm. is only Jewish, you know, mm-hmm. and Kay tended to. I think he, there's a story apparently that he once um, hurt the feelings of um, Alan King rather deeply, that Alan King was doing early in his career was doing his act, and, and Kay apparently, um, and this is from Alan King that we know this, that apparently uh, Kay insulted him or said something along the lines of, you know, you're you know, very ethnic comedian or something like that, and, and King was very hurt by that. So uh, Kay could be very, um, I don't want to say schizophrenic, but he could be very 
he seemed to go in different directions and areas. He was so focused in what he was doing uh, so often, and people would, you, you get these stories of people just saying he was the most incredibly wonderful, warm uh, individual to be with and work with, and then there are people who say that, that he was so difficult to work with or he could be a, you know, a, a total bastard. And, and, I, and, and then people who saw both those sides at different points and they were able to, to reconcile them both. And I think that's like any, you know, intense uh, popular performer. And, and the fact that he was kind of a renaissance man. This is a man who, uh, you know, was very close to being a surgeon and had those talents. Uh, he had a fly, uh, you know, a pilot's license and was an avid uh, uh, flyer. Um, you know, he had uh, he was into very into cuisine, cooking, and, and whatnot, and, and you know anything that he uh, had a, had an interest in, or all of a sudden he, you know, it became a passion, and then he became the best at whatever that interest was, and a lot of it wasn't even in the realm of performing. So he was a very intense and complex individual who, you know, sometimes I guess his his ethnic identity. Sometimes he would, he would be, he'd sort of go back and forth between that. Sometimes uh, was uncomfortable with it, and at other times totally embraced it and, and brought it out in his, his actual uh, performing work. So um, definitely a conflicted and complex individual, depending on what mood he was in. You know. It seems to make sense, and I can imagine sort of when he came into all of this, that assimilation had to have played a part in all of this, that he knew both sides of the story, and how does that play out? Right, and 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 because again, because of his appearance and his ability to to he really did have a chameleon ability to um, to assimilate and and fit in, and he had the you know the blue eyes and the blonde or red hair and the, those and and very one might even say waspish sort of looks, and and so he could he could very much pass in that and mold without a lot of the American public even giving it a second thought at a time when that could be a liability. So, Bruce, you're going to be here at the Yiddish Book Center on September 29th to do a program. Can you give me a really quick preview of what it's like so people will know what to expect? We sure hope we're going to see as many of our listeners as possible. Right. Well, the thing that we're going to do, there, there were four short subjects that he made for educational pictures starting in late 1937 uh, into early 1938. And we'll give more information as to what was behind those films. But the, the thrust is that the character that he plays in these films is all of a piece. And when they're referred to, as I said, by, by others, they're often dismissed and not, they don't really have an accurate reading as to what's going on in these films. He plays one very specific character. It's a neurotic Russian aristocrat character named Nikolai Nikolaevich. And you see a, a you know, it, he, he is bringing a fully formed character to these films that you're, you don't, you're never introduced to him as being anything, and yet Kay tells you everything about this character in, in essentially three films. We're going to see two complete films, the, the second of the two of the four films, and we're going to see pieces of the first two since he only figures in the second half of the second film and figures almost as a featured character in the very first film. So we're going to see pieces of the first two in which he figures, um, just for expediency, and then see two, two uh, subjects in which he is the lead character, and, um, but playing the same character through these four films and, and see a, a development. And this is a character that he never returned to in any subsequent work. 
and there's reasons for that. So, so we'll, that's, we'll be discussing that. We'll be looking at these very rare films and enjoying them and seeing a very young, very early Danny Kaye right on the cusp, a good six to seven years before finding stardom in the early 40s in, in motion pictures. Well, I know I'm looking forward to this. Again, um, for those who are listening, Sunday, September 29th at 2 p.m. at the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Mass. To learn more, yiddishbookcenter.org, where you can find a full description as well as purchase tickets for the event. And this also coincides with Danny Kaye's 100th birthday, yes? Yeah, um, if you go by his reading of it. His, his daughter, Dina, recently told us that, that his birth certificate seems to read that he was born in 2011. And uh, inexplicably, she has no idea for some reason he put forth that he was born in uh, 1913. But that's what she has said. She said, we're going to celebrate his 100th birthday the way he wanted to celebrate it, which is this year. So. Excellent. Well, we look forward to welcoming you, and thanks. This was fascinating, and I'm sure that there's much more to explore on the 29th. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. You've been listening to Tune In, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Lisa Newman. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. Thanks for listening. Be well, be strong, and tune in again.